Insightful Podcasts by Informative Hosts. Insights into Things, a podcast network. Welcome to Insights into Tomorrow where we take a deeper look into how the issues of today will impact the world of tomorrow. From politics and world news to media and technology, we discuss how today's headlines are becoming tomorrow's reality. Welcome to Insights Into Tomorrow. This is Episode Zero, Gun Violence. I'm your host, Joseph Whalen, and my insightful and intelligent co-host, Sam Whalen. How are you doing today, Sam? Hi, everybody. I'm good. Thanks for having me. So, uh, this is our inaugural uh, episode of uh, Insights Into Tomorrow. Um, Just real quick, I wanted to sort of give a synopsis of what this podcast is going to be about. Uh, Basically, we're going to be talking about news and issues in the headlines here that are impactful today and things that will, moving forward into the future, have a lasting effect. Um, So the first topic that we're talking about this week or in this episode is gun violence. Um, And I think it's pretty clear to say that gun violence is a large topic in the news today, Um, mostly thanks to uh, a lot of the um, mass shootings that we're seeing these days. But I think gun violence in general in the United States is much deeper and much more complicated than that. So the first thing that I think we'll be talking about is just basically a recap of some useful information regarding the Second Amendment. So you're aware, Sam, the Second Amendment uh, is what gun advocates um, cite for their right to carry or right to own weapons, correct? Uh, yeah, that's usually the go-to, the go-to answer. Uh, you know, if it's, it's in the Second Amendment, it's hard to argue against something uh, historical and official like that. So. Exactly. And the way that the Second Amendment is written um, has been open to interpretation, and, and it reads, you know, from the Constitution, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Um, and if you read that strictly on face value and you consider the time period in which it was written, um, you're talking about, you know, revolutionary times when your militia was basically your, essentially what became the National Guard, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it was a time where, especially post-revolutionary war, where you weren't even sure where, you know, what country you lived in at the time. I mean, there had just been a revolution. There were still... Um, you know, battles going on in your hometown. So it, it only made sense to want to protect yourself. Sure. And and your local militias were basically groups of people that, that you know, I guess if I, if I used a Wild West term, it would be almost like posses in, in the Wild West where it was a group of vigilant uh, citizens who were uh, bound together to try and protect the greater good. Um, and they were gangs, really, for, for, you know, a better, in lack of a better term, they were citizens with guns, and those citizens with guns had a loosely aligned group of people that would stand up against foreign invaders. Um, they weren't regular soldiers, they weren't part of the army, um, but they were considered to be part of a militia at that point in time. So the idea behind the Second Amendment was that the citizens who could form these militias 
should be allowed to bear arms and uh, and carry weapons, keep weapons. And a lot of people who are in the um, column of gun control have latched onto that uh, mil- that militia aspect of things and basically said, well, if you're not in the militia now, then you shouldn't be allowed to to bear arms. You have to be part of some kind of organized militia. And we don't have militias today, at least none that aren't generally associated with, you know, cults or extremists or, or something along those lines. The concept of citizen soldiers, which is what militias were born from, um, evolved into today's National Guard, where it's not regular army. They are citizen soldiers who serve part-time. Um, and if you look at it from that perspective, it makes sense that the National Guard members should have weapons, but average citizens shouldn't. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I agree with that. I just think, and it's something that's usually cited when you're arguing against the Second Amendment and, and how it's aged, is that the militia in the Revolutionary War and post-Revolutionary War, their weapons were uh, muskets and, you know, um, things that were individually loaded, and oftentimes it would just come down to hand-to-hand combat anyway. Um, so comparing that to today is, is impossible because when, you know, when that amendment was written, the founding fathers had no idea the leaps that technology would take forward where, you know, automatic weapons and, and things like that in the hands of a militia today are much more deadly than, say, you know, 10 or 12 people with muskets lining up and firing into the trees. Um, one person with an automatic weapon can be far more deadly than a whole militia um, back in post-revolutionary times. Absolutely. I mean, you figure um, a well-trained soldier who has worked with a musket for um, years, if they're lucky, they can get three to four rounds off per minute with a musket. And uh, the muskets were notoriously inaccurate. So those four rounds... If one of those four rounds struck home, you would have been lucky. Um, and you look at what you have today, you, you can fire off hundreds or tens or dozens of rounds per minute, depending on you know the type of capabilities the weapon you have today is. So, yeah, it was, I mean, one person could, could put out the equivalent firepower of an entire line of militia. And it, it's kind of scary, but... Um, People have attacked that whole idea of, you know, I don't have to be in a militia. It's designed for citizens. And there was a a case uh, in 2008 um, that went before the Supreme Court. Uh, It was District of Columbia versus Heller that held up that the Second Amendment protects an individual's right to possess a firearm unconnected with service in a militia. So um, that ruling right there kind of... Um, undermines a lot of what I think the founding fathers had in mind for for weapons. You know, they didn't expect he, the founding fathers could not have foreseen an individual who was mentally deranged going off and killing dozens of people with a weapon that was meant to defend people with. Um, so we're kind of left with that fairly fresh legacy of that Supreme Court ruling. So. Yeah, and I mean, I uh, oh, you go ahead. No, no, go ahead, please. Uh, part of that that ruling for self defense, and I think it's something I'll probably touch on later once we get to the mass shootings. Um, but I think this is just more my personal opinion. But I don't think uh, an assault rifle or an automatic weapon in general is necessary for the level of self defense that is intended in that ruling. I mean, a pistol or even a shotgun for, for home defense. I mean, you're not holding off armies of people in your hometown. You don't need something as efficient as, well, efficient at killing in the worst way as an assault rifle to do that. And I think that's where a lot of that gray area comes in, um, which I'm sure, like I said, we'll touch on a lot more later. Yeah, I agree. And I think I think the sad thing is, is that if you're going to use self-defense as a reason for having a weapon, that self-defense is really defense against other people with those weapons, in which case it's it, it negates itself, right? So Exactly. 
So anyway, we have the Second Amendment now. We have to sort of live with it at this point in time. But it's it's good to kind of reflect on on why it was put into the Constitution and the the aspects that we have to deal with today. Let's take a quick break, and we'll come back, and we'll talk about some uh, some interesting statistics on gun violence and the leading causes of death in the United States. So every day, 100 Americans are killed with guns and hundreds more are shot and injured, according to the website everytownresearch.org. The effects of gun violence extend far beyond these casualties. Gun violence shapes the lives of millions of Americans who witness it, know someone who was shot, or live in fear of the next shooting. So I find that number, I mean, statistically alarming that a hundred Americans are shot, uh, are killed, uh, with guns every day. And, and of course it averages out across the course of the year. Um, but that's like, I don't, I don't see a hundred people during the course of a day. And to imagine that a hundred people are being killed by guns is kind of scary. Don't you think? Yeah, I mean, it's it's difficult to put that number on a personal scale because, I mean, if you think about 100 people, um, like you said, you, you don't even see 100 people that often. And could you name 100 people that you know? Um, but then when you compare it to the, what, 330 million people that live in the United States, it's it's a much smaller number. And I think that's something that when you're looking at statistics like that, it's, it's difficult to, to see the scale of them and to, to compare a number like 100 people a day to the wider number of the total population of the United States. And and it's there where you can get lost kind of in the numbers, which can be uh, kind of confusing, you know? Sure, and I think you're right. I mean, it is 100 people a day is statistically insignificant in the grand scheme of things, unless you're one of those 100 people, right? Exactly, and and that's... You're not going to go up to one of those hundred people's families and say, "Oh, your numbers are your, your numbers don't matter because there's so many other people in the United States." Of course, for those hundred families that are affected, or hundred you know brothers and sisters, or wives and husbands that are affected, it it changes their lives forever, and that's it's definitely a problem, especially because it doesn't have to be a hundred people a day. You know, there's there's things that we can do or that we should be able to do to at least lower that number. I agree 100%. So if you mathematically put the numbers out there, you're looking at an average uh, death per year to gun violence at 36,383, which is an alarming number. Uh, There's no doubt about that. But if you look at the top 10 leading causes of death in the U.S., it, it, again, it it sort of dilutes that 36,000. Uh, so the number one leading cause of death in the United States is heart disease. So 600 and nearly 650,000 people a year die from heart disease uh, at the number one spot. <clears throat> so 36,000 seems less significant considerably from that. But heart disease is also something that is something that may or may not be preventable, whereas gun deaths, you know, if you take guns away, you can stop gun deaths i mean it it, on the surface it seems like such a a no-brainer type thing of well we've got thirty-six thousand people that are dying because of guns let's just stop it let's make the guns go away and stop it do you think that's that's a viable answer for that um i think it's an idealistic answer i don't think it's a realistic one though i mean um look at those numbers neil degrasse tyson got in trouble a couple probably like a month ago for making the same argument because, you know, he compared similar numbers. He compared gun deaths to, you know, car accidents and heart disease and stuff like that. But the part that he left out was that there's there aren't heart disease lobbyists that are, you know, campaigning for more heart disease in America. And, and you know, you, you can prevent heart disease, but things like cancer, which is the number two with uh, 599,000 deaths, that's more difficult to prevent. And, and like you said, you could take the guns away to prevent those deaths, but I think that's going to be much, much more uh, difficult than, you know, a lot of people are ready to accept. Well, I think cancer is a is a very good one that we can pick on here because you're right. It's nearly 600,000 people annually die from cancer, 
and and this is all cancers, mind you. We didn't break down the cancer numbers, but a large chunk of those are from cancers from tobacco products. And even to this day, the federal government subsidizes the growth and sale of tobacco products because of how much money the federal government brings in in tax dollars on it. So the federal government doesn't want to move to stop um, gun violence. You can't get legislation literally to save your life from the federal government. But a cancer-causing agent that we know is a known carcinogen, we know we can put a number on how many people get cancer from smoking tobacco and chewing tobacco and, and everything else, the government actually subsidizes that. Now, if you could get the government to stop that, I have to imagine you're going to see a significant drop in cancer deaths as a result of tobacco use. But the federal government's not going to do that because there's money in it. Yeah, and that's something we're going to touch on later with guns as well. There's a lot of money in that. And every we every year, more money is dumped into it. So it's, it's just another industry. Yeah, and with, with government, unfortunately, it's always a matter of following the money. And you'll see why things get done with government. Um, another interesting statistic that came out of the leading causes of death, the number 10 leading cause of death is suicide. Now, that's a roughly 47,000 people die from suicide, which in and of itself is tragic. But when you look at the number of gun deaths at 36,000 and you break those numbers down, nearly two-thirds of gun deaths are suicides. So that number makes up the vast amount of suicides that are done in this country in itself. So the natural conclusion one can draw at that point is, if people didn't have access to guns, would they commit suicide? Uh, well, I think, I personally think they still would. I mean, the guns aren't, aren't causing mental health issues. I think the reason that the gun, nearly two-thirds are from guns, is because it's it's kind of awful to say this, but it's, the, it's a fast way to go, and it's an easy way to go, especially if you have access to a gun. I mean, other options, and it's mentioned here, um, they're often not successful, um, and you're often just left in more pain than you had before. Um, so, so with a gun, you know, it's fast and it's easy, and I think that that's why that number's so high. So even if you took guns away, you'd still have suicides, or I guess maybe you'd have more suicide attempts. But I don't know. It's it's unfortunate. So guns are a convenient path to suicide. But if you're committed to committing suicide, if, you know, if that's the path you're going to go, you'll find a way to do it whether or not you have a gun or not. Yeah, exactly. And I think in this instance, the real, if you're talking about suicides, the real problem is going to be mental health and mental health facilities, which we could do a whole other show on. I don't think guns are the problem when it comes to suicides. I think guns are just a tool that people use to achieve, you know, that end that they're going to get to either way. And I could agree with that. But I don't know, maybe the optimist in me wants to think that if, if it wasn't so convenient to commit suicide, maybe there was a, a, a higher survival rate or a higher chance of, you know, quote unquote, talking that person down off the ledge if it wasn't so convenient. So if it was something where, I mean, let, let's face it, a gun is a, is a snap decision, a pull of the trigger and you're done. Other methods of suicide tend to be a little bit more uh, involved, a little bit more complicated and a little bit more difficult. Um, and they, some, some of those methods take some, some, effort and time to accomplish and maybe that little bit of time if, if I didn't if I couldn't just pick up a gun and do it maybe there's a chance in trying to go through those other methods that somebody could reach out to me and, and see that I have an issue and, and get me the help that I need and you might see those rates go down that's purely speculative though no, I, I can definitely understand that I mean, and, and on top of that if someone still can't get to you in time, you can still be brought back from whatever you've attempted. You know, you can, you can be brought to a hospital and they can treat you. You can be, you know, it's, it's less fine. It's less uh, final than a gunshot wound to wherever you're going to do that. 
other methods. Um, you know, there's ways to treat that. You can have your, your stomach pumped or you can have, you know, cuts, uh, you know, bandaged up and healed. Whereas with a gunshot wound, especially if it's going to be a head that's going to be fatal like we have here, uh, 85% of the time, those, those suicide attempts end in death. Now, I think with other, with other ways of going about suicide, those numbers just aren't the same because you can be brought back and you can be, you know, treated or rescued from that. That's a very good point. You know, I, you know, if I put a gun to my head and pull the trigger, chances are that's immediately fatal, uh, and you're not going to revive me from that. But you know, if I take a handful of pills to try to do things because I'm down in the dumps and and I don't think there's any way out, someone could discover me, and and you're right, I could be revived from that. So, very good point. Um, so. Two thirds of gun violence, two thirds of gun deaths are suicide. So that leaves us one third of our our gun deaths. So a little over ten thousand gun deaths a year are uh, homicides uh, by someone else's hand, obviously. Uh, and there's a couple of interesting statistics on this. Uh, for instance, uh, the U.S. gun homicide rate is twenty five times higher than that of other high income countries. So we kill 25 times more people than other countries, other first and second world countries. Um, is that because um, we have access to guns? Uh, I personally absolutely think so, yeah. I mean, I, I've heard people from other countries speak about um, gun violence in their countries, and you just can't get guns, so there's not that much gun violence. Um, that's why in you know the UK you see a lot of stabbings um, and things like that because guns aren't as easy to get to. Uh, even uh, police officers, I don't believe that they all carry guns. Um, they're it's it's astounding. Um, it's such a different culture um, compared to America, where we have almost a, a, a fetish with guns in this country. I, I believe so anyway. Um, so yeah, I mean if you can't get access to guns, those numbers are obviously going to be lower and. The, the argument is always, well, if criminals want to get guns, they can get them. That's clearly not true because it's it's people that get the guns legally and otherwise that allow this rate to be 25 times higher than than other uh, high income countries. And that's a good point because a lot of a lot of arguments that I hear on this subject are, well, you know, if you pass gun control laws so that average citizens can't get a gun, then only the criminals are going to get the guns because they don't abide by the laws. And while there is a certain natural logic to that, the point that you make of, well, where are the criminals getting those guns? They're getting them illegally from people who legally obtain those guns. Um, so if the average citizen couldn't get guns, the flow of guns available to criminals should in theory, drops significantly at that point in time. And that's not, it's also an issue of, of supply and demand, because if there's a demand for guns, the market is going to be flooded with them, which it obviously is. So if there's just more guns in circulation in general, anybody is going to be able to get their hands on them. If there isn't any demand or if there's some kind of regulation where those guns aren't being produced or sold, then the pool from which you can get a gun from is going to drop dramatically. Well, in that, in that case, I would cite the effect that Prohibition had, okay? So with Prohibition, they outlawed alcohol, the production and transport of alcohol. And as a result of that, there was such a demand for it that it fueled this huge criminal underground that bore the likes of Al Capone and, and other uh, organized crime families that then basically became a plague on the country. Um, do you think something like that could potentially happen if a law is passed to stop citizens from, from owning firearms where the black market or the underbelly of society then has such a demand for them that, that the criminals rise up? Well, I think, I mean, if you're comparing it to the prohibition, it's a lot easier to make alcohol in your basement than it is to make a gun. Um, and I think that's that's something there um, that, you know, because the guns are complex machines, obviously, that require a lot of parts. But I think I'm not sure if the criminals would rise up. I think we already have such a problem that 
and I think in other countries, their their gun regulations are much more strict. And they the fact is they just have less shootings. So I think that the data is there to support the fact that that less guns overall equal less mass shootings and less deaths by guns. So. And I don't disagree with that um, that premise. However, I will say with the advent of uh, 3D printing now and and the ability to print metallic objects, it's not that difficult to build your own gun at home these days. Um, you have you have um, homebrew gunsmiths that are doing this on a fairly regular basis now, and they're they're you know they're unregistered, they're they're unregulated guns in that case, and the federal government has been struggling to find ways to crack down on that yeah i think um if if you were to eliminate guns you would then see the uptake in 3d printing which and then you could regulate that so i think there's always a cause and effect no matter what you're going to do you'd, you'd be able to regulate it somehow so another interesting uh, statistic on gun homicide is um half of all gun homicides t- took place in 127 different cities, which represent nearly a quarter of the U.S. population. And within these cities, gun homicides are most prevalent in racially segregated neighborhoods with high rates of poverty. Um, this is a, a throwback to the Black Lives Matter um, movement, I believe, where you're seeing low-income people in high-crime-rate areas um, are being, the, you know, largely the victims of, of this plague of gun violence. Um, what's your take on that? I mean, is that, is that indicative of our society? Is that something in and of itself that can be fixed? Uh, well, I think, I think a lot of it is that poverty can sometimes be a trap well not sometimes most of the time is impossible to get out of and I think that it it the culture of it can cause people that are growing up in it to then beget more of the the negative influences of it so I think that the gun violence is it can come from it because it's, it's a it's almost a brute force technique where if, if you want something the easiest way to get it is to point a gun at somebody to take it and if you're in poverty, you don't have that much, so it's it's a it's a matter of survival almost. And guns again become a tool to survive in that kind of environment. Uh, no doubt, yeah, I, I think you're you're absolutely right. Is it it is really a survival of the fittest? Um, statistically, uh, Black Americans are ten times more likely than White Americans to die by uh, gun violence. Uh, and I think that's a significant statistic, not just on the topic of gun violence itself, but, you know, I mean, that spreads across racial lines. It spreads across economic lines. Uh, and I really think it's a testament to how our society reacts to these issues and, and how, you know, we solve or we don't solve these problems is, you know, politicians, again, you follow the money. You know, politicians are going to regulate things that are beneficial to themselves, their campaigns, and their political parties. And inner-city blacks, while they mean votes for these politicians, they're not getting any money out of them. And I think, ultimately, it's a it's an economic crime on the part of our politicians to ignore these things and hope that they solve themselves, but they're never going to. So we'll take a little break. We'll come back and we will talk uh, a little bit about mass shootings. So during the course of 2019, which isn't even over yet, we've had, statistically speaking, a total of 79 people killed and 122 people injured in mass shootings and these stem from the uh, January 23rd uh, shooting in uh, Sabrina, Florida all the way up to the August 31st Odessa, Texas shootings Uh, and in between there there's 
well, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, about twelve. So just for 2019, we've had a roughly a dozen mass shootings uh, in the United States. Is that alarming to you? I don't. I'm not sure because I think nowadays it's it's almost become. And I hate to say it, but it, it's almost become commonplace. It's almost become expected to to have these kind of things. You know, you look at the the spreading out of these of these dates, and it's averaging at least one or two a month. Mm-hmm. And and to think back, like it's it's you become desensitized to it, which is awful because it's still such a horrible thing. But I mean, the human mind, you know, it's a it's a coping mechanism. When you hear about it so often it just becomes expected to a certain extent. And it's obviously terrible because if you're in one of these shootings, you don't see it that way because it's your life and it's happening to you. But then again, I think most people don't think it's going to happen to them. And I think that that's, it's just a symptom of, of the, the larger issue of, of these plethora of mass shootings. Well, and, and again, we'll look mathematically at the equation here. Statistically speaking, we're saying that the 36,000, People who were killed by gun violence in the grand scheme of things in the country is insignificant. Of those 36,000, 79 were killed in mass shootings, which is not even a margin of error in the calculations of these numbers. But the mass shootings are the ones that seem to get all the press. Um, do you think that's doing... Um, is that helpful to the overall topic of gun violence? Do you think it's doing a disservice by by leaning so heavily on mass shootings as an example of of what uh, is wrong with gun violence in this country? I think it can be a double edged sword. Um, I do agree that I, I think because I wasn't I wasn't aware of the the number of uh, suicides attributed to gun violence. Um, so I think a lot of that should be touched on more. But I also think it's it's a problem with uh, the media in general today is that it's it's about sensationalism and you're not going to report on the number of suicides from guns every week. But if you can talk about, you know, a mass shooting and you can get footage of, you know, people running or you can get firsthand accounts of, you know, how terrible it was, that's going to get you can put that on your five o'clock news and it's going to get people to watch. And it's, it's terrible to equate it that way, but that is a a lot of the times how these kind of things work. They need people to watch and that requires stories. And that's why, despite the fact that it's a margin of error in, you know, statistics wise, it's the things that's going to get eyeballs on these kind of stories. And that's why they keep getting reported on and harped on. Even if they're a small, uh, you know, symptom in, in the grander disease. And I don't disagree with you there. Um, I, I think my concern comes more from the fact that because the mass shootings get the um, the press going and, and they're the ones that seem to get all of the attention, the outrage from people is is inaccurately placed on these things. So... You know, 79 people were killed this year so far, which is tragic, without a doubt. Um, but the fact that people are demanding that we have gun control measures put in place so that people can't buy automatic weapons, semi-automatic weapons, you can't buy bump stocks, you can't buy magazines that are over a certain size, all the focus that the politicians and the public are demanding and, and, and seeming to adopt here are targeted towards mass shootings when none of the the majority of these killings being suicides is getting the attention that it needs like you know and and i don't mean to make light of this but you know an ar-15 with a bump stock that has a 30 round clip isn't going to save someone's life who's committing suicide with a gun so putting restrictions on that's not solving those problems. It only takes one gun or one bullet, you know. So my concern is that because the mass shootings are getting all this attention, 
you're getting a, an extreme uprising of what people think are the solutions. And when you have that kind of extreme uprising of we need to take all the guns off the street, then you get the Second Amendment, uh, you know, gun rights people out there who are getting even more extreme and inflaming the situation even more. When really you've got 20,000 people who are killing themselves with guns whose voices aren't being heard here. You're not getting mental health, like you said earlier, to help those people because they're not crying out for help. And the lack of them not crying out for help is being overshadowed dramatically by mass shootings where people are asking for extreme solutions. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I do agree with you with that. But I think... Uh in addition, I think that at least there is reporting on it because by reporting on mass shootings, you're getting you're shining a light on on things that America has not really been keen on talking about. Mainly, the two are uh, mental health and the uptick in white supremacy in the last couple of years. Um, so, by shining a light on uh, mental health in regards to the shooters, I think that that can have ripple effects uh, to people that may be facing you know suicidal tendencies, as well as people that are mentally uh, I don't want to say deranged, but that could, uh, you know, hurt themselves and others through using guns, as well as, you know, the white supremacy, um, which you're seeing in a lot of these mo uh, most recent shootings. Um, so I think the suicides definitely should be talked about more. But I also think a byproduct of covering mass shootings in general is that mental health is getting uh, is becoming more of a national dialogue, whereas previously it wasn't uh, it wasn't as uh, commonplace in you know most people's vernacular i'll buy that you know it definitely is getting more attention because of these shootings um, and i think more attention in general is probably a good thing even though it's not uh, directed probably where it would do the most good but anything's better than nothing i suppose and speaking of nothing i want to take a moment <clears throat> to talk sort of a little bit about where i think some of the problems are with gun control itself and to do that, I'd like to illustrate that point by putting a few numbers out there. <clears throat> so gun control uh, is really a political issue. So if you can get politicians on board with your point of view, um, you'll get legislation passed that supports your, your points of view. America has demonstrated time and time again that we have the best politicians that money can buy. And just in 2018... Looking at gun rights versus gun control lobbying, uh, the gun control lobby, the people who want gun control, spent uh, just over $2 million on lobbying groups with government uh, elected officials. Whereas the gun rights group, our Second Amendment friends who think everyone should be packing heat, um, they spent nearly $12 million and the gun manufacturing industry, who obviously wants to sell guns, spent an additional $1.4 million. So you're seeing the gun control um, lobbyists significantly, by an order of magnitude, outspent consistently by gun rights and the gun manufacturing industry. Um, so it's really no surprise why politicians are doing little to nothing for gun control. Um, how, do we, how do we solve this problem? Uh, I, I mean, it's difficult to compete with money, uh, just in general, especially when you have organizations like the NRA, which are huge, uh, which we'll touch on them later. But when you have organizations like that, that their sole purpose is uh, to influence politicians and, and to fund for gun rights – and they're backed by some of the richest people in the world, that is a difficult thing to compete with. And I think really if you can't get them with money, you're going to have to get them with public image because when, and when they're branded as almost supporting or fueling these with the mass shootings, despite the fact that the mass shootings are statistically, you know, not that impactful in terms of deaths compared to the rest of the country, giving them a negative public image, I think is going to hurt them a lot more than, you know, outspending them because despite the fact that money runs a lot of the show, I do think that at the end of the day, if the public perception of these lobbyists and these organizations are negative, that's going to have almost as equal of an impact. Uh, you know, I, I, 
I'd like to think that that's how it would be. Um, I don't know. Maybe I'm just overly skeptical when it comes to politicians and money. But, um, you know, the number one thing a politician is interested in when they get in the office is getting reelected. And they'll do pretty much, you know, as demonstrated historically, they'll do pretty much anything to to assure that they get reelected. You know, Um, if and anyone who wants to get elected or reelected needs campaign financing. So the concern that I have is you, you can buy politicians. You just need to be the highest bidder in the room. And right now, the, the gun lobbyists are the ones that are, that are packing the most money in. So how do we, if we can't get gun control in place, how as citizens can we solve this problem or protect ourselves or otherwise resolve the issue of gun violence? Do we have some alternative? I mean, the, the easy answer, even though if it's not the most realistic one, is, is to vote with your wallet. You know, stop buying guns, uh, stop buying ammunition, um, despite the fact that these countries have, or not countries, uh, companies have contracts with the military and with the government that they're going to get a lot of their money from. If they lose the consumers um, that are buying a lot of these guns, that could hurt them too. Um, otherwise, I'm not really sure. Elect uh, gun control lobbyists or uh, officials that are have a lot of money i'm not sure how to you know you can fight fire with fire i guess but it's it's a it's an uphill battle absolutely well you you make a couple of good points there one is stop buying ammunition so so the second amendment guarantees you the right to bear arms it does not guarantee you access to ammunition so is outlawing ammunition or charging a thousand dollars per bullet an answer uh it's an answer i don't think it's going to work though i don't think anybody would ever go for that I mean, I think because then you could just start making your own bullets because I think that's I mean, if you you, you talked about 3D printing guns is easier. I think making ammunition is even easier. Um, so that would I think that would encourage more underground black market stuff. But uh, I don't know. Uh, that is an answer. But like I said, I don't think that would ever pass. I, I would tend to agree with you with that. Uh, the other thing that you mentioned there is to vote in people of your own point of view and i think ultimately that's kind of where we need to get to um it politicians spend a lot of money to get elected and it's not always the guy who spends the most who gets elected sometimes the moral fiber of the country wins out and you elect the best person not the richest person uh and i'd like to think that if we had a little bit more of that, then then we could solve some of these problems without having to worry about buying our politicians. But we'll come back. We'll talk about some uh, gun control techniques, what we think will work, and uh, some gun control, uh, corporate gun control that's been, been in the news lately. So there are a number of techniques that are floating around for gun control. I'll run down the list real quick, and you tell me what you think uh, would be the most effective or combination of these. So we've got background checks. Everyone is is yelling about these days. Then you've got a technological solution in smart guns that only keyed individuals can fire. Uh, we have our assault weapon ban that's already in place that people want to extend to uh, additional uh, rapid-fire semi-automatic weapons. Uh, then you've got legislation for restricting the magazine size of the weapons themselves, so you can only have a certain number of weapons, which I think mass shooters at that point in time just practice reloading and it doesn't solve a problem. Then you have waiting periods where you can have, and these work in conjunction with background checks, where um, you can limit the immediate access that people have to to weapons. Do any of these have a chance of solving any of the problems that we're facing today? Um, Well, I I do like the assault weapon ban. I do personally believe that that should be uh, expanded on to include pretty much all automatic weapons. Um, I don't see the need unless you're going to a firing range why a citizen would need to carry an automatic weapon 
um, for self-defense. I mean, like I said in the, at the top of the podcast, you're not defending your house from an army anymore. Um, but well, and, and just to clarify that there is a ban, you know, there was a, I think it was a 94 ban on fully automatic weapons. So we're talking weapons that you can fire as fast as you can pull the trigger, which in most cases equates to automatic, especially if you're using bump stocks. Okay. Yeah, that makes a little bit more sense. Um, but then I guess, I'm not sure. I, I was not familiar with smart weapons. I'm not sure how practical or, or uh, uh, prevalent they are, um, how easy they are to get. Um, but I'm not sure how smart weapons would help because if the person owns the gun legally and is going to do a, some kind of shooting illegally, if it's coded to their uh, thumbprint or however they work, they're still going to be able to use it. I don't see how that would help. Um, background checks and waiting periods are probably the best, um, the two together. Um, and I think with background checks, more emphasis on mental health evaluations would be probably the best route because that's where we're seeing, cause then you could, you know, get two birds at one stone preventing the number of suicides. Um, if mental health evaluation is a thing you can give people the help they need as well as people that are a threat to, uh, others and themselves with the mass shootings. And, and I, I think you're probably probably right of the options that we have available. They're probably the best. Uh, smart weapons are interesting because uh, famously a few years back, the state of New Jersey uh, legislature passed a law saying that when smart weapons were made available, they were mandatory in our gun law. So they, they didn't even exist at the time. But the premise of a smart weapon is there's an electronic circuit with sensors in the gun and the person who owns the gun would have a bracelet or some other type of transmitter so that if they're holding the gun, the gun can be, the safety is unlocked and they can fire the gun. But you're right. If the owner who legally owns the gun is the one who's using the weapon for illegal purposes, smart weapons don't solve anything unless there was some kind of mechanism in which police had some kind of universal override to lock the weapons. Which no one's ever going to go for that because it'd be the same thing as taking the guns taking away. The gun away. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and even background checks with waiting periods, unfortunately, have holes in it because the system itself has had individuals who've been involved in mass shootings who have had red flags thrown up in their background checks or their paperwork got held up or got redirected and action that should have been taken wasn't taken. Um, maybe a combination of all these things might might be helpful. Um, the idea of restricting magazine size. You know, we go back to muskets. Okay, so if if we if we take the concept of bearing arms literally the way it's written in the Constitution and the time period in which it was written, then everyone should be allowed to have muskets and no other weapons, in which case you would pretty much eliminate mass shootings because if I can only fire three rounds per minute, if I'm really good, you know, there is a 20-second turnaround time between reloading that gives people a chance to, to you know, run away. We had done an, another uh, podcast on our Insights into Teens uh, podcast on mass shootings and we had talked about safety techniques and how to handle an active shooter situation. And one of the things we talked about there is wait for the person to reload and use that opportunity to act, either to flee the scene, contact police, um, distract the, the shooter or take the shooter down. But really, it's a matter of when they're not lethal, they're in the process of reloading. So if that person has to reload every six rounds, it increases the number of opportunities that individuals who are victims in this case um, can can flee to safety or defend themselves. So it might be a combination of all of these things. Now, one of the interesting things um, along these lines is what commercial companies are doing these days. So, for instance, um, NPR.org had an article um, a little while back on Walmart um, who's going to stop selling certain types of 
ammunition in the wake of the El Paso, Texas shootings. Um, the Walmart CEO, Doug McMillan, says, it's clear to us that the status quo is unacceptable, which is just a statement to the obvious. Um, bullets such as the uh, 223 caliber rounds used in some military-style weapons like the AR-15s uh, can break bones, damage tissue far from the point of entry. And that's less to do with the caliber of the weapon than it has to do with the um, the charge that it uses because of the high-speed um, nature of the round. And they talk about um, handgun ammunition, such as 9mm hollow points, are designed to maximize damage. Now, why civilians are allowed to purchase hollow point ammunition is astonishing to me um, but both types of these ammunition will be discontinued at Walmart so from a corporate standpoint Walmart's at least trying to do their part to improve things do you think this helps the overall situation do you think it, it they stand out as leaders as a result of this what are your thoughts I absolutely I think they do yeah I mean I'm not much to advocate for Walmart um, but they're all they're like the largest retailer in the world, I think, or at least in the country. So I think for them to take a stance on something like this is is huge. Um, and it'll encourage companies to follow suit. I mean, even if you look at it from the cynical standpoint that because these shootings happened in Walmart, they need to make a stand, it's still, you know, positive change because it, it's it's got to start somewhere. And even if it's from a cynical, a company-saving face standpoint, the end result is still the same, that these changes are being made. And if you know, Walmart is the first to do it. It it would uh, benefit other companies to probably follow suit or face you know public ire. Yeah, I, I agree, and I think someone has to step up. Someone has to be the first to step up and start doing something. If the government's not going to do something to help out, um, corporate responsibility you know needs to kick in here. Um, and on another front, uh, you have companies like. Walgreens, Kroger, uh, CVS, and Wegmans, who've adopted a no open carry policy now. So they won't allow you in the stores if you're carrying weapons at this point in time. Now, to me, this isn't solving anything, but what it is is basically them throwing their, their weight behind the gun control movement at the very least. So at least they're trying to uh, spearhead the efforts, um, I mean, we we go to Disney frequently, and even though I'm not a big fan of Disney, Disney has had an open a ban on carrying weapons in general. And in fact, we had I had an incident a few years back. I was meeting a, a group of friends from a gaming group, and uh, one of the people who attended was a Florida citizen. And Florida is a open carry state where you can, as long as it's clear and in view you can carry your weapon um he had shown up at the what was downtown disney their shopping area and we were going to have lunch and we're sitting there having a conversation and disney uh two disney cast members and two security guards approached us and uh basically started questioning him because he had his holster on but he did not have the weapon he kept the weapon locked up in his car um and they went so far as to ask him to you know, take the holster off and conceal the holster or put the holster in his car for the duration of his stay because of how alarming it is for people to see someone carrying a weapon and how strict they were with their weapons policies. So having other companies jump on board here with this um, kind of defeats one of the arguments that these open carry states have, uh, that being... Well, if there's someone who's an active shooter, our citizens can carry weapons and defend themselves, um, which clearly wasn't effective in two of the recent Texas shootings, where Texas is an open carry state as well. And, um, you know, the shooting still occurred. They were not intervened by members of the public there who were carrying weapons. What are your thoughts on open carry and, and these companies? banning opening open carry in their stores uh well i can definitely understand that especially for uh someone like disney uh because you're there's a lot of kids there and then kids especially since they're conditioned now in school uh to uh have 
gun uh, for shooting drills, I can absolutely understand why a gun would become a uh, something that would you know be a fear kind of trigger. Um, so I can understand that, but I also think that I don't know. I'm not sure what the. Oh, I can understand why you'd want to open carry, why you'd want to be able to say, "Hey, I have a gun. I can defend myself." So that if you know you were to encounter some threat, it might deter the threat because they can see that you have a gun. But, I mean, in the Walmart shootings, I believe, and I could be wrong about this, but if you look at the security footage of the guy doing it, he just walked in and opened fire. He wasn't – he didn't have any holsters or anything. He, he was fully loaded when he walked into the store. So I think it's mostly, like you, like we said before, the company's just getting on the bandwagon and, and doing something to try to, uh, you know, save public face. Yeah. Yeah, and, you know uh... – People like to go back to the open carry and say, well, if someone sees me carrying a weapon, it's a deterrence. They're going to be far less likely to do anything. And then I can't help but think of, oh, yeah, that really worked in the Wild West, right? There were no shootings because everyone was carrying a six-shooter, you know? And it'll make you more of a target, too. I mean, they're going to aim for you first if they right. think you're a threat. Right. They're going to hit the, the person that's the, the biggest threat. So one of the other... Um, things that I wanted to mention here, and it was I think this is probably the, the last thing that we have to talk about, is a frustration that states and, and cities have now with the federal government not taking action and then taking action themselves to try and curb some of these threats. Uh, the city of San Francisco recently, uh, according to a Fox News article, branded the NRA a domestic terrorist organization. Uh, they passed a resolution that says the U.S. is plagued by an epidemic of gun violence, which is, uh, you know, you couldn't state anything more obvious than that. The resolution accuses the NRA of using its considerable wealth and organizational strength to promote gun ownership and incite gun owners to acts of violence. Um, is this the way to go? Uh I think it helps. I mean, I also think it's probably, well, not probably, it's definitely politically motivated. I mean, San Francisco is probably a mostly a, uh, liberal area. So by doing this, they're probably going to get a lot of votes from people that are against the NRA, which is typically uh, Republican dominated. Um, but again, despite it being cynical, I do think it is something helpful, especially because they talk about um, – uh, limit those entities who do business with the city and the county of San Francisco from doing business with this domestic terrorist organization. Um, I think it's a little extreme, um, but it's also really bold. And, you know, to come out and say this organization is domestic terrorist, and I'm sure the people that are members of the NRA are, you know, we're thrilled about that. But I think it's similar to Walmart, where someone has to make the first step and someone has to say something and do something. Um, so I think if that's, you know, politically motivated or not, if that's what comes out of it, then I think it, it does have a positive uh, outcome. Well, the interesting that I, I take from this, and you pointed out here, is they're labeling the NRA as domestic terrorists. Well, if you have a domestic terrorist, Timothy McVeigh was a domestic terrorist, law enforcement went out of its way to capture this individual, put him on trial, and put him away. They're not doing this to the NRA. What are they doing to the NRA? They're trying to hurt the NRA financially by saying no one can do business with them. So they're not – they're labeling them domestic terrorists, but they're not treating them like domestic terrorists. They're treating them like you know, a misbehaving corporate entity that you're not going to allow them to do business with the city anymore. So not only is it politically motivated, I think. I think it's economically motivated here because you're not handling them like you would a regular domestic terrorist. Um, I agree it's it's probably a step in the right direction. Um, is anyone going to follow this example, though, is what my concern is. Um, probably not. I mean, it would depend on what the who what states the NRA has in their pocket. Um, if it's all if it goes, you know, red state, blue state, it'd be a little bit easier to determine. But again, who knows? Um, and I think the going back to the, to the wording of that. I'm pretty sure the only reason they threw the domestic terrorist organization thing in there was to get headlines to draw attention to it. Because like you said, they're not acting on any of that. Yeah. But if you're going to call anything or anyone a domestic terrorist, you know, you're going to get the headlines. And it doesn't even make any sense to call a corporation that. It'd be like, you know, 
I mean, yeah, corporations are people, but calling the NRA a domestic terrorist, it's, I don't know, it doesn't really make any sense. It'd be like, you know, calling them equivalent to Al-Qaeda or the Taliban for foreign terrorism. Yeah, especially when you have no intention of arresting anyone or, or, or like, actively doing anything. You're just saying, I'm not going to do business with you. Yeah. So, I don't know. It's not going to solve any problems, but you're right. It's a headline grabber. So, we'll come back and we'll talk about our final conclusions on the discussion. So, safe to say this this problem is is certainly bigger than the than the two of us here. Um we're not going to solve the problems or come up with any solutions here, but I am curious where you think this is taking us down the road. Do you think this is um, this is something that's going to stick with us? And uh, where do you think the, ultimately the resolution is going to go? Uh, well, I think it's probably only going to get worse before it gets better. Um, given the view. Yeah, well, um, I mean, given the current administration, they don't seem to have any intent to change the gun laws. And even with a change, you know, we have the upcoming election, but even with a change of administration, we saw how much um, that money is being dumped in to keep guns in the hands of Americans and being circulated. So I'm not sure a change of political party, even if that were to happen, is going to make that much of a difference, you know, when compared to the millions and millions of dollars that are being spent. Um in conjunction with that, I mentioned it before, but I do think America has kind of a fetishization, that's a difficult word to say, uh, with guns. And I think that that's a core social problem that needs to be addressed that I don't think anyone really wants to talk about. Americans love guns to a weird, in my opinion, weird level that you don't really see in other parts of the world. In other parts of the world, guns are a tool, they're a utility, they're for self-defense, but in America, it's it's a point of pride. It's like having a Lamborghini in your front yard. You have, you know, your assault rifle tricked out with all the most expensive attachments. I think that that is a another symptom of the problem that is extremely difficult to address and to treat. And I would agree with you 100% there. I think what we have is a cultural problem, uh, not a legal problem. I mean, we have laws right now that govern uh, how and and how we acquire weapons and how they can be used. Um, I don't think passing more laws is going to solve the problem. I think people need to not be as uh, fetishized about their guns. I think you hit the nail on the head. Guns are a rite of passage, just like cars are for Americans. And until we as a society decide that, you know, the survival of our children and our loved ones is more important than walking around with the biggest and most impressive gun, I think we're lost as a society. We have to kind of accept the fact that those freedoms that we have, that our Second Amendment friends are clinging so so tightly to um, they're going to cost us lives and they're going to continue to cost us lives in the meantime we're not focusing on where the real problems are with with um, mental health issues um, and we're not dealing with the real problems that cause these things and gun violence is not about mass shootings mass shootings are an outlier that are attention-grabbing, headline-grabbing outliers of gun violence. The leading cause, or the leading um, statistic of gun violence is suicides. And, uh, you know, mass shootings are an unfortunate side effect of having weapons, but suicide is, is something that is not gun-driven, but at no point in time should suicide be convenient. So I think... You know, as a society, we need to focus on those things that are more important. And if we can focus on our mental health issues, they will indirectly affect the other problems themselves. So I think that's all we had for uh, this week. Was there anything else that you wanted to add, Sam? No, I think we covered everything. All right. Uh, I think that's it. This is a uh, monthly podcast that we're looking at here. 
Uh, we don't have a production schedule just yet. This is our first one. Uh, once we go through post production, we'll see. Uh, we'll see when we get this uh, posted. But uh, when it does go up, uh, you'll be able to get the audio version of this at podcasts at insight. Uh, I'm sorry, podcasts dot insights into tomorrow dot com, and you'll be able to get the video version on our YouTube channel at youtube dot com slash insights into things. I want to thank you, Sam, for taking the time with us today. Uh, And uh, we'll be back next month with another great topic.